Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Caitlin Tagarelli earned her PhD in linguistics from Georgetown University and eventually made the move to the language learning industry, making it more fun, accessible, and effective through evidence-based solutions. She's currently head of research for Mango Languages. She draws on her interdisciplinary background in linguistics, language learning, pedagogy, educational technology, psychology, and cognitive neuroscience to drive research initiatives and collaborations. She might sound familiar because Caitlin also moderated the LCL panel on EdTech, which was featured in a previous podcast. Topics discussed include neurolinguistics, postdocs, the linguist list, job interviews, transferable skills, research studies, thought leadership, and applied linguistics. Links to Caitlin's LinkedIn profile and other resources mentioned in the show are in the show notes. So firstly, I want to welcome Caitlin to the podcast. Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Hi, Laurel. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So the first thing I have been asking people, because the answers are just so interesting, is when did you figure out, when did you learn what linguistics actually was? Was it earlier or was it late in your academic career? Uh, in terms of academic career, I guess fairly early. I was a junior in college when I really learned what linguistics was. Okay. Um, but I had always really loved languages. So as a kid, I, I remember learning to count, you know, count to 10 in several mm-hmm. different languages and learning pig Latin when I was... <laughs> like seven, I don't know. <laughs> um, I was always really drawn to languages. As a child in middle school, I wanted to learn uh, all the Romance languages, which at the time I thought were French, Spanish, and Italian. Uh-huh, uh-huh. As, as most of us did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> expanded there. But um, when I was, I did major in French in college. Mm-hmm. I majored in neuroscience and French um, because I was always very kind of more science minded, science mm-hmm. and math minded, but I really loved languages. Uh, and so I kind of pursued both. But then when I was a junior in college, I had a friend who wanted to be a linguist and I learned what linguistics was. And then mm-hmm. I also, I guess it was that same year. Yeah, it was that same year I went to France on my term abroad and I took a phonetics course as part of learning French pronunciation. And so I kind of was open to the world of IPA and that sort of thing. And so that's kind of when I that kind of clicked a little bit more for me. How interesting. Uh, some people have said that they they knew it pretty early on and had learned about linguistics like you did when they were just getting their bachelor's degree. And other people sort of switched when they were in graduate school because they didn't know about linguistics really until they you know, got a little further in their academic career. So when you were starting to take linguistics classes, was there one aspect of it that was more interesting to you than, than another? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I thought that different languages sounded so interesting and it was just amazing to be able to communicate in different ways. But for me, really, actually, I was so interested in science and human behavior or just, Mm -hmm. I guess, behavior in general. And I was really interested in neuroscience and kind of understanding the biological bases of behavior. That's something I was interested in from a young age and in high school even. Um, And to me, language is the most interesting behavior that we have. And then when you think about learning different languages and how how did those live in your brain, you know, and, and I had learned, I, I, I'm a native English speaker and then I learned French 
And then in college, I started to learn Spanish and the way that the Spanish interfered with my French, <laughs> even though that was my first second language, it was just really fascinating to me. And that's kind of, I think when I really started to get very into it and think that that's something that I wanted to pursue or have more of in my life and understand yeah. more about. Cool. Um, so then you're finishing your BA and then what, like, how did you envision yourself moving forward, getting more advanced degrees? So I, I always wanted to be a professor mm -hmm. from a fairly young age. I think even when I was just starting in college, I wanted to be a professor. And so I thought I would do a PhD at that point, I think I thought I had to do an MD PhD to get it paid for. I don't, I don't know why. I was a little bit pre-med at some point, mm -hmm. I think. But I, after college, I, I reached out. Well, I, I was going to teach France to teach. Um, sorry, teach English in Fran in France. Mm -hmm. So I did that through the the French embassy, and I went to France for a year. I taught primary school, and that was kind of always a dream of mine to live in France for at least a year. Mm -hmm. So I did that. But before I went to France, I actually reached out to a professor at NYU who studied neurolinguistics and just to get some more information from her and try to understand what sorts of programs I could maybe get into. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working uh, in a lab at NYU that summer in a neurolinguistics lab to kind of get a better sense of those things. Uh, and then I went to France for the year and I taught English. And then while I was there, I, I applied to grad school. And so I ended up going to, uh, to Georgetown. Okay. And so I did um, a PhD in linguistics. When you got to Georgetown, you were still thinking that it was going to be um, a professorship for you, right? Like you hadn't considered working outside of academia at that point? No, not at all. No. Okay. So when did that change for you? Uh, so that changed about, let's see, I was on the academic job market for, I think, four seasons. Wow. So I did, the year I was graduating, I was on the job market, and then I ended up getting a postdoc. Uh, and so I went to Nova Scotia for a few years, and I did my postdoc mm -hmm. in Nova Scotia. And then every year I was there, I was on the job market. So I think that was actually two years. And then I moved back to the States and I, I did one more year while I was adjuncting. And then after that last year, I decided, you know, this is the last time. If I don't get a job this mm -hmm. time, I'm not doing this again. Um, and so, you know, after probably about two years of that, I started to feel like I needed to explore more options because it wasn't going to be a viable one mm -hmm. or it might not be a viable one. Uh, and so I started to apply to other jobs, um, Actually, my postdoc was a it was funded by a research industry fellowship, mm -hmm. which is fairly common in Canada. I don't know about as many in the United States, but there was there's a lot of this research industry partnerships in Canada where you've got um, companies working with academic labs or teams or or what have you. And so, what I was doing is I was working fifty percent of the time in this psychology and neuroscience lab focusing on my neurolinguistics research. And then 50% of the time I was working with a local animation studio to help develop oh, language cool. and literacy apps. Mm -hmm. So at that point I was kind of starting to get a better sense of what industry was. And I, and while in Nova Scotia, I had a lot of exposure to industry 
kind of through this, through this fellowship that I had, and also through my, my supervisor, who was very involved in kind of helping his students get that sort of experience. Mm. So that's where I kind of thought more about, you know, what, what other stuff is there that I could do with this degree. And do you feel like, um, as, as you're going through this, this change from being really academically focused and, and kind of sliding into industry, did you have support or people that you could talk to about it? Um, I ask this because I've spoken to a number of people and it seems to vary like wildly from department to department where some people have gotten loads of support from um, advisors and professors to go into industry and other people have had zero, like they really had to do it on their own. So how, how do you feel you were supported from, from your, your academic contacts through this, this journey? So I would say very little. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my, my postdoc supervisor a little bit more just because he really tried to help us develop those skills the skills that you need outside of academia, like communicating science to wider mm-hmm. audiences mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. thinking about um, productivity and skills in sort of a different way than you're used to thinking about in academia. But, and you know, he would sometimes try to help me find jobs if he saw some that might be interesting outside of the typical tenure track sort of things that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. But uh, at Georgetown, not so much. I think there were opportunities available. So at Georgetown, we have the MLC program and I'm Mm -hmm. sure I I was aware of it at the time, but I think, I'm not sure about this. I I think it wasn't as advertised to PhD students like that. I don't think there was, there was as much programming about it, Mm -hmm. but if there was, I don't know that I would have been receptive to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I was very focused on where, what I was doing and, and trying to get an academic career path. So mm-hmm. sometimes I wonder if, if there was more there than I thought, uh, but it, certainly from my professors and like the main people that I had as advisors, it was very much uh, an academic focus, but at Georgetown, that's really all I was focused on anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's tough. Um, the thing that seems really obvious for most departments, but isn't really verbalized is that it's incredibly difficult to get an academic position. As you found out, like there's you, this brilliant qualified linguist, and you're applying for jobs and nothing is coming through because there just are so few jobs. You know, Mm -hmm. you can be the best of the best, but when there are a thousand people competing for, you know, 10 spaces, that's not going to be most people. And, um, I don't, it's just not something that gets talked about enough, how tough it really, really is out there. Um, and it, it would seem to be beneficial to the students and the faculty alike if, if this was just something that was discussed, you know, it's a really almost impossible job market out there. So people shouldn't um, be so wedded to the idea of being in academia because it can result in, you know, years of applying and heartbreak and moving around and all that before it just becomes too obvious that it's not going to work out for you, even though you might be the most brilliant person doing what you're doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I had a lot of support in that way where my professors would kind of be encouraging and say, well, you know, you're great at these things. You should get a job. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't, there wasn't really as much of the 
there actually aren't that many jobs out there. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like lots of encouragement for you because you're great, but there are lots of great people and uh, there just aren't enough jobs for, for all the great people that are out there, which is really sad. And I, I think just seeing the way the economy is going in, in this year of our Lord 2023, um, it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse as mm-hmm. funding for universities continues to decrease. Um, okay. So, um, at this point, you're having this realization that you're you're not going to really be working in academia, and you're starting to do some industry work. How did it feel? Like, was it a, a big emotional switch going from this idea of being a professor into kind of realizing that that wasn't going to happen for you? Yes, it, I mean it was a huge, hugely emotional, um, and very big mindset shift. And, you know, I talk to people very often. I do a lot of informational interviews and I, I think it can't be overstated how much, much of, of a shift it is because you, I talk to people and they just <laughs> seem so lost. And it's really uh, a kind of an unsettling experience because it's a, it's a very different world to go from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. academia to industry and to, to really have this. It's an identity shift. At least it was for me. And I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah, I I think so too. Absolutely. There should be free therapy out there for people making this transition. <laughs> yeah, well, I think those of us, you know, that have made it or kind of try to be available to a certain extent, but yeah, I think we're we're not professionals in that in that respect. Okay. So, um you're making this shift and oh, I'm sorry. I'm referring to your LinkedIn profile here just to uh, make sure I have the timeline correct. Did you go to working at uh, your current position, which is at Mango Languages, was there anything in between or was that really your first entree into industry? Uh, That was really my first. I had done, so I also at Georgetown, I had done some contracting with Rosetta Stone and Ah, and I had done kind of some other like little apps here and there, a little contract work. Uh, But yeah, nothing seriously. So I did, I did my postdoc. I had my daughter when I was living in Canada and kind of wanted to get back closer to home. So that's, that's part of what prompted the shift back to New York where we were at the time. Uh, but also, you know, it was the kind of thing I probably could have stayed in Canada for at least another year or two. Like there's in academia, there are often ways to find that temporary funding for another year or another two years, or another three years. It was just all very uncertain so I knew we knew we wanted to move back to New York to be closer to my family. And so I actually, I had gone to school um, in somewhat upstate New York. That's not really too far upstate, but in the Albany area. And I always loved New Paltz, which is this one of the, where one of the SUNY schools is in New York, the State University of New York, if anyone's not familiar with that. And I emailed the the chair of the psychology department and I said, I'm moving back to this area. I have a PhD in linguistics with this background in psychology and neuroscience. Do you have any courses I can teach basically? Mm. And he said, yeah. (laughs) So I taught there for a year Mm -hmm. adjuncting. And that was another situation where I probably could have continued doing that for a while, but it was just, I was getting like stuck in that. We're not stuck, but kind of tired of that uncertain underpaid kind of right. of employment. Mm-hmm. 
that this is what they call it. it it always feels like anything could could be taken away from you at any moment like you know we know that in industry nothing if you're an at-will employee you could be fired at any time but the precarity of academic positions like being an adjunct is so much worse because it feels like you're not getting paid enough anyway and everything could just go away at a moment's notice right and even for the you know there was a a full-time adjunct position coming up the following year but it was that they encouraged me to apply for, or I think there was even a visiting professor, like a one-year, um, yeah, that's a visiting professor position. I've, I've been out long enough, I'm forgetting the terminology, but, uh, you know, it was still, how many other people are applying for this? What's the certainty of getting it? And then it's only another year. It's just kind mm-hmm. of prolonging this this uncertainty for even longer. Right. So that's, anyway, I did that in the meantime. And then I was expecting my son in in the fall So I ended up just um, kind of stopping there anyway. And that was kind of that May going into um, the fall. I was doing some research contracting work as well. And then I kind of was just doing that part time and then figuring out what I was going to do next once I went back to work after my son was born. Okay. And then I actually, um, I had applied for the mango job December the year before. So about like six or so months before I stopped working at the university, I saw this job and it was this perfect job for a linguist. Uh, So it was, it described, you know, you can, um, the qualifications were things like you are comfortable working with many languages, even those you're not familiar with, and you can use editing software like Audacity and you're, you have experience with content development. And there were just all of these things that, to me were so obvious and easy. And I was kind of like, I could do this in my sleep and I would really love it. It would be really fun. So I applied for the job, but it actually, it had a deadline and the deadline was after my semester ended. So I was going to submit my grades and then I was going to apply for this job, Mm -hmm. but that's not really how it works in industry. You know, in academia, Uh often there's a deadline, you know, for job applications in academia, there's a deadline and that's kind of when they're going to start looking at applications or they'll consider applications until that date. In academia, it's not like that. So by the time I applied, they actually had already filled the position. Yep. But I contacted the hiring manager and she said, well, send me your stuff anyway and I'll keep you on file. And then I found out a few months later that one of my good friends from Georgetown actually got the job. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so this is one of those, you know, networking plugs. <laughs> yes. I will. I want to talk about that. So yeah, continue, please. Yeah. So I, she was a good friend of mine. We had done a lot of projects together. We both did our dissertations on Basque, which was this kind of unique and random connection that we had. And, and I said, yeah, you know, let me know if they ever are looking for anyone else. And then she ended up leaving after a year and my son was three weeks old and she emailed me and, and said, Hey, are you still interested because they were really interested in your application. And so Mm -hmm. that kind of got the ball rolling and I ended up taking the job that she left. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, Just to skip back for a minute, when you first applied for the job, how did you find it? Was it on uh, LinkedIn or Indeed or or some other place? It was on Linguist List. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, we, we advertise on Linguist List. 
Okay. One of the few, I will say, um, but more now yeah. than there used to be. Um, probably five years ago, I, I was looking on Linguist List and talking with the people at the LSA and the, the associated Linguist List people to, to say like, hey, man, you really need to get more industry jobs on here. Um, and there was a lot of puzzlement, like, why would we do that? So I'm, I'm really glad that uh, it's changing and that there are more industry jobs being advertised on there. That's that's great. Yeah, I don't see many, but but when we have linguist jobs, we do tend to post them on there. Yeah, it's it's a great place to look for linguists, right? At the linguist list. Yeah. So when you applied for the job, what did you do to prepare for it? Like you applied for a job, did you have interviews or did you just submit your resume and then have like email communication? So I had done the whole job application submission almost a whole year before I actually got called back. So that was a, a resume, mm-hmm. you know, a two-page resume, which at the time was a truncated CV because I mm-hmm. didn't know what I was doing. Right. Um, and then I think there was a short cover letter and I had to do a video application. Oh, interesting. Okay. So what, and what it. was that like? <laughs> so that was, this is part of why I didn't submit this uh, this application earlier because I had to create a video where I was talking about myself, but I kind of, I'm a little bit of an overachiever, I think. And so I didn't think I could just sit and talk to the camera for two minutes. I thought it had to be like really nicely edited and stuff. So I did this, I had several scenes and yeah. So wow. I put a lot of work into that. I had oh, learned how to amazing. use um, iMovie in grad school for a, some project I worked on. And so I, I guess I put it to the test, but yeah. So I did a whole, a whole thing of, uh, but it was, you know, it was kind of fun. And then w- when it came around the second time, I didn't actually have to resubmit anything, but I did go through the entire application process. So mm-hmm. I had four interviews. I had two applicant tests. It was a pretty uh, intense process okay. still, but they, you know, were willing to wait until my son was a little bit older and I was able to start a few months later. Yeah, sure. Um, I For the benefit of people who are uh, listening to this and who are going to be applying for jobs, can you talk a little bit about the interview process? Like what kind of questions did they ask you and what did you do to prepare? I, I think for people who are getting out into industry for the first time, those types of interviews are really different than any interviews you do when you're in academia, you know, as a student or, or as a teacher. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. So I, you know, I think a lot of it is for linguists in particular, and I can really only speak to Mango, um, but, you know, we're really interested to hear about how people feel about languages, the, the why people are passionate about languages and kind of their story and connection to that and uh, experience language learning or language teaching and learning both. Honestly, at, at Mango, it's, it's really valued to have language learners as well as teachers working mm-hmm. at the company. And then... You know, a lot of it is about um, working with teams and managing time because at this point, pretty much anyone can be remote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of that about, you know, experience learning and teaching languages and, and having a passion for languages and then uh, time management and, you know, because mm-hmm. we all work remotely at this point. So I was actually hired remotely. The linguist team at Mango has been remote for as long as I've been there. But uh, mm-hmm. before the pandemic, most people were on location in Detroit, but now we're very distributed. Uh, so that's important working with um, 
teams with a lot of different cultural backgrounds and, and managing people because linguists work with a lot of our, what we call subject matter experts who are native mm-hmm. speakers. Mm-hmm. So they, they can be from all different cultural backgrounds. And so it's really important to understand how to communicate with people and how to understand cultural differences and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And, and that's part of, I, I think in, in my line of work, which is in marketing, having some sociolinguistic training for that kind of thing is super helpful. Like just being able to understand the ways in which people use language to communicate things culturally, that doesn't come out like in the actual words, but is more in like how you say it and who you talk to and and how these things are expressed. Sociolinguistics is great for that. Like you can really pick up on that stuff so much better than other people without that kind of training have. Oh yeah. At Mango, um, So you've been there for almost five years now. Can you talk a bit about how you, your role has changed over the years? Because now you're very important, right? You're the head (laughs) of research there. So how did that all happen? I don't know if I'm that important, but I do have a fancy title. Yeah, you Um, do. It's great. So yeah, I started off as a linguist and specifically a, a content development linguist, but my title was linguist, which was kind of cool and is kind of rare. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was not what I was expecting to be honest. I was, I was looking at all sorts of different things uh, and I was not expecting to actually remain in language, but yeah, so I, I was a linguist and I did, I worked in product development. So I was working on creating content that actually goes into the app. So Mango is a language software company, which is in the same genre as Rosetta Stone, Duolingo, Babbel, those sort of things. So we have all these language courses. And so the linguists do a lot of work to kind of manage and help decide how the content is created and what sort of content gets in there and how new features are made. And then we manage the native speakers who actually create the content and and we do a lot of that review and that sort of thing. Uh, And then I also, it's a very small company, but we kind of had each of the primary linguists kind of had their own niche at the time when I first started. So I had more of the research side of things, which really meant trying to understand a lot of the background and the science behind some of the decisions that we were trying to make. So if there was a new feature coming up or a new product that we wanted to explore, we wanted to do background research to understand the literature reviews, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I facilitated journal clubs where we'd say, okay, let's, we need to read this research and then we need to get together and talk about it and try to understand how this is going to influence the product. So I did a lot of that. And I also, when I first started, because I had this, this background in research was kind of having these conversations with people and trying to understand, well, how do we know that this product works? And the answer that I got a lot of the time was, well, we know it works. We have great reviews. People love it and, you know, all these things, but we, it hadn't been tested. Mm-hmm. And so one of my first big projects was to get an, an efficacy study, an external efficacy study underway. So I was the liaison and kind of quality assurance for that, that project. And so we had an efficacy study completed, which was, which was great because it was able to actually, um, show that, you know, it it does work. People are learning and it's, Mm -hmm. they're learning pretty quickly from the app. So that was kind of exciting. And then, um, after ended up being two years, because the pandemic was in the middle of there, I 
was able to advocate for this need for a research program at Mango to really focus more on really trying to understand the science behind what we were doing and to to express that and to try to put the product to the test a little bit more and, and have more research going into what we were doing. And so I I took on that role of of running that program, mm-hmm. which at this point is still a very small program, but it's it's growing. And so now I kind of transitioned out of that content stuff over the past few years. And so I do things like academic outreach. We started a dissertation award. So Ooh, that's something that cool. I'm really excited about. So the past three years, we've been awarding a small grant to students who are doing their dissertations at the intersection of language learning and educational technology. So that to me is really important to, you know, as a company that's doing language technology, we really need to support the future of research in language technology. And so that's a way that we can do that. And then we have a research collaboration program. So academics can contact us if they want to use Mango for a research project. So if they want to understand more about mobile assisted language learning or even just computer assisted language learning more generally, we have a product that they can use. We have, you know, I I spent so much time as a psycholinguist and neurolinguist. I spent so much time creating materials and and many linguists do to, to do projects, but we have something that's already there that people can use to study efficacy or to study, um, you know, engagement and motivation and, heritage language learning and all sorts of different things that that people can do with this app. And so I created a program where we can actually help facilitate that. Mm-hmm. So you want to do a project with Mango, you reach out to me and I can help you figure out how you can get that working. And we can provide licenses for, um, for studies, for participants and researchers and things like that. Oh, so that's, that's been, cool. uh, that's been really fun. And we've been doing a lot more of that even actually in the past year, that's picked up quite a bit. And so we've got some exciting collaborations going on now. Wow, that's great. How, how great to be able to, to reach back out to academia in, in that way to just make the connection more solid. Mm-hmm. It's been really nice. It's been really nice to have that connection and, and kind of get, get more of that research for, for me personally to get more of that kind of research side of things a little bit more activated. Yeah. So you said Mango is pretty small. Do you know how many people work there? Just curious. I think we're about 50 employees. Really? Oh, that is small. Somehow I thought it was much larger than that. Oh, wow. You guys do a lot. Yeah, there are more contractors. Like, you know, the we have um, a lot of the the experts, the subject matter, matter experts mm-hmm. are um, contractors. So, you know, we have like a, a coaching program, a live uh, Mango Live video coaching program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those, those are mostly contractors, but there are many of them. Yeah. And how many, well, so you're a linguist and you have other linguists under you in, in your department. Is that correct? Uh, yes, but it's very small. <laughs> I just have one. One. Okay. So you have a linguist. Um, and are you guys the only two linguists who are actual employees at Mango right now? No, no. There are a lot of linguists, actually. Okay, okay. When I started, I think there were maybe four, 
maybe a few more on the um, the Mango Live, the video coaching side of things. Mm-hmm. I think there, I think there might be over ten. Oh, that's I don't, great. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I, if I should even guess. It, it it changes a lot, and you know we have more projects, and then more people come on. So, sure. but there are, there are a lot more of us now. That's great. It, it seems at a lot of companies that. Um, the, the one linguist gets hired and, and gets into a position where they have a little bit of power and then they get to evangelize for hiring more linguists. So it sort of takes one to show a company what linguists are really good at and what they can do. And once they see how valuable that skill set is, then it's like, oh, sure, we'll hire more linguists. So it, it's it's sort of a um, an avalanche effect of getting more linguists into jobs. And um, most people who get hired as linguists are really eager to bring more linguists in to the position. So that's where the networking really comes in, right? Because you're at a place and you're like, well, we need more linguists. And then you reach out to your network to find somebody who has the right skill set. Oh, yeah. I'm always, always sending emails to my Georgetown listserv. Mm-hmm. We've actually had several Georgetown hires since I started. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, we've got a little contingent now. So you mentioned before that um, you do informational interviews for people. Um, is it Georgetown people primarily or just from um, other folks who contact you on LinkedIn? No, it's it's just often people just contact me on LinkedIn. When, when you're talking to people doing informational interviews, what kinds of things do you highlight as important for people to understand if they want to work at your company or a company like yours? Are there, are there things in particular that stand out to you where you say to people, like, you really need to do X or something? I mean, I think the biggest thing, well, there are two, two really big things, and I don't think this is going to be anything novel or groundbreaking, mm-hmm. but... Uh, I think understanding the concept of transferable skills and understanding mm-hmm. what those are. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of goes along with the second thing, which is having this mindset change where in academia, it's so much more about what you know, mm-hmm. whereas in industry, it's much more about what you can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In industry, nobody cares what my research expertise is. They just care that I know how to do research, that I understand how to look for articles, that I can read them and synthesize them and communicate them, that I can work with data. It doesn't matter what kind of data it is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, to a certain extent, it matters what kind of data it is, but it doesn't matter that I did fMRI studies when I was in graduate school, right? It just Mm -hmm. matters that I know how to wrangle big data sets. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a really important distinction, and it's it's a huge mind shift change, mindset mm-hmm. shift. Sorry, it's a huge mindset shift going between academia and industry. And then once you kind of figure out going from that what you know versus what you can do, it's like, well, what what can I actually do? I, all I've been thinking about all this time is what I know and what papers I've written and that sort of thing. So what are the skills that I actually needed to use to write those papers and give those presentations and do those research projects or teach mm-hmm. those classes? Yeah. Um, I've also heard from people at, at especially larger companies that, as exactly as you say, it, it's not what you know, but it's what you can do. And it's also what you can learn to do. So mm-hmm. being somebody who's open to learning in, in your position is incredibly important. Like people will throw stuff at you. And if you can learn how to, to do something like gain a new skill pretty quickly, which linguists are actually really good at generally is getting up to speed on things very, very quickly. 
um, it will absolutely help to um, rise in an organization or move laterally or go to another organization if that's what you want. So that willingness to learn new things, to pick it up is incredibly important. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I, I find that it's actually, it's so common among PhDs or, you know, graduate students and postdocs and that sort of thing. You're constantly learning new things. Mm-hmm. You have to learn how to use new tools and new programs. And now you have to write this bit of code. So you've got to learn this new programming language or something. There's always something that you have to learn in order to be able to do the next thing. And mm-hmm. so it's just kind of normal. And it's not necessarily the case in industry. Not everybody's willing mm-hmm. as willing to learn new things. Um, right. and many people are, of course, but it, it is a bit of a, it, it does set you apart for sure. Yeah, yeah. Just having that that aptitude and and wanting to increase your skill set, and uh, this is also something that comes up too. Um, you know, you've been at the same place for like five years, and maybe you'll be there for another ten, but you might go and work at another company. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, and it's not a bad thing to do that, right? Like moving from one company to another, or one department within a company to a different department. It's it doesn't mean you failed at the thing that you you left. It means that you're trying to grow and change and, and do other things. And sometimes that means going to work for another company. Um, you were talking before about the, the mind shift from the academic mindset. I think that's also one where in academia, you know, if, if you leave your academic job, it feels like failure. Mm. But that's not the case in industry at all. Like you leave a job for a better opportunity. It doesn't mean you failed at your old job. It just means you're going for something bigger and better at some other place. Yeah. So how do you see your your position that you have now? Do you have plans for how you're going to grow that over time? You know, you, you were saying um, you have all of these different outreaches and different collaborations. What other kind of stuff do you, do you see that you could be doing there? Well, another thing that I do a lot of is I, I do a lot of what, what, I guess you're in marketing, right? We call it thought leadership. Uh-huh. So I, I do a lot of um, videos and most, it's mostly uh-huh. videos, but I did uh, blogs and and podcasts as well. So that's actually been a big part of my job for the past year or so. And, you know, we'll see. I think maybe I'll kind of be pulling back from that and focusing more on research because I, I think we're getting to the point now where we can start doing more of this in-house. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the research collaborations, trying to actually uh, be able to get some of our own studies going. So I, I would like to see more of that happening. Uh, it, you know, it all depends on the priorities of the company and budget and all the, those sorts of things. And yeah, it's ultimately not my decision, but it's oh, kind of, sure. you, you know, <laughs> what, whatever makes sense for the, the health of the company and, and what's, what's important to them. Um, that just sounds so interesting. I, I mean, I think most people, um, well, most linguists that I know would love the opportunity, you know, to talk about what they're doing. I certainly do. Like in my line of work, I am more than happy to talk about naming and branding to anybody who will listen. So um, it's a thing, again, that I don't think you get an opportunity to do that much in academia is to really talk about what you do and why it's cool and all that. And in industry, I think you have those opportunities far more often because your company always wants you to be going out there and talking about how great your company is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, that was actually something that um, was kind of part of my shift into head of research where I wanted us to really start talking more about why 
mango worked and you know what was the science mm. behind why this product worked and how it aligned with best practices in second language learning and that sort of thing so mm-hmm. um that's kind of how the the youtube series started i actually have a couple so oh that's awesome kind of fun i did one that was uh kind of a, almost an intro to second language acquisition mm-hmm. and i've been working on, on one now where i'm going through each of the mango features and talking about what it is and why this helps you learn so it's kind of fun to kind of dig into that and and understand, think about why it is, kind of pull back to what I understand about second language learning and uh, and then try to communicate it in a way mm-hmm. that non-linguists will understand, which is a challenge. Right. I was just going to say that. And that's something that I've heard from a lot of people too, that, that that in itself is a skill that you need to develop is how to talk about linguistics to non-linguists and mm-hmm. make it you know, make that information available in a way that people can understand and also get excited about. Um, And and it's hard, right? Like when you're in academia, you're mostly talking to people who are on the same wavelength as you, like there are other linguists in your department or your advisor. And then once once you get out, people really have no idea what linguistics is. Sometimes even your employers don't have much of an idea of what linguistics is. So um, it's really good to be able to break it down and talk about it with examples in ways that people can can really understand how it applies to the real world and not just theoretical stuff. Mm-hmm. If people are interested in working at a company like Mango or one of the others like Rosetta or Duolingo, what kind of skill set do you think um, would would serve them best? Um, you know, if they're still in graduate school and they're thinking about taking other courses or specializing, what do you think is the most valuable thing that they could do? So I think if you're looking to work at a language technology company like Mango mm-hmm. or Rosetta Stone or Duolingo, then you're probably coming from more of a an applied linguistic second language acquisition background mm-hmm. um, or at least should have some of that experience. And we, we have sociolinguists at Mango, but they have quite a bit of teaching experience. So that mm-hmm. kind of uh, language, te- language teaching experience. So that that's important for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, having experience, it depends a little bit on on the company and the specific need at the time, but some sort of language teaching experience is definitely important. It doesn't necessarily have to be extensive. So I, for example, am probably one of the least experienced language teachers at Mango. I think I have maybe about two years of it total. I I taught English in France and then I did kind of some tutoring mostly here and there uh, aside from that. So. A lot of people have some more, more extensive language teaching experience, um, but I do have a PhD in second language acquisition and, and a background in learning and memory and that sort of thing. So that kind of, I guess, complements it. But uh, you know, the other people are much more um, experienced and and skilled in that department. So that's really important. Um, but then you know, it might be more on like the curriculum side of things, or it might be more on a specific language or teaching in specific. Um, environments like K-12, for example, or Mm -hmm. teaching English. And then other things that, you know, I I know at Mango, it's harder to to speak for other companies, but even just kind of keeping a little bit of an eye on what sorts of jobs come up. I think areas that are really in in demand are NLP, and that's a a big one, right? So Mm -hmm. computational linguistics is is just going to keep getting bigger. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also assessment. Uh, so assessment is really important for 
all language learning, right? And mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think that's that's a place where a lot of the language apps are not quite up to par. And it's, I think that's going to be changing. That's something that, that they're working on. And I, I think that's really important. And also, even if you're not working at a, in a language technology space, assessment is just a place where I think there are more jobs. Do you think people, well, if people are not specializing, say, in computational linguistics, do you think people need to know some coding or is that something you can pick up like on the job? I do not think you need to know coding to be a linguist at a okay. at a language tech company. Okay, good. I'm so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, absolutely not. I, I'm sure there are some that do. I mean, yeah, but I don't think it's usually a requirement. Okay, that's, that's great. And then uh, the corollary to that is, do you think people need to have a PhD to work at a language tech company? No. Also a great answer. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I mean, we have brilliant linguists at Mango who have masters, have bachelors, uh, and they're fantastic. We couldn't have hired better people. I mean, mm-hmm. the, some of these people predate me, but um, really, no, you don't need to have a PhD. I know in certain companies, it makes a difference. So Duolingo, I think, I'm pretty sure I, I've worked on I've been on panels with people from Duolingo. This is where I've mm-hmm. heard this, that there's like different hiring tiers depending mm-hmm. on your education. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but you could have the same position. So for example, I think they have learning scientist positions and I think you might be at a different tier if you have mm-hmm. a PhD versus if you have a master's or maybe a bachelor's. So I, you'd need to look into that to verify, but I think that's, that's the case. Yeah, sure. I, I, I'm so glad that you were able to answer those questions because I think those are the two questions we get asked the most often from people who are out there looking for jobs. And it, it's reassuring to hear it from someone who's in that particular industry to just say, you can be totally awesome and not have a PhD and it's okay. I'm sure you can confirm, you know, the process of getting a PhD is becoming harder and harder because it's so expensive and it takes so long. And mm-hmm. um, again, the, the academic job prospects are virtually nil at this point. So you have to be super committed, I think, these days to want to go through a whole PhD program, even if you're funded for it, it. It's a lot. It's just a lot of your life put into doing that. And for people who don't need it, um, Maybe a BA is enough or, or an, an MA. And sometimes you can go back and get your advanced degree later on if you want to. And sometimes your company will even pay for it. I'll say one other thing, just kind of on that topic of mm-hmm. the degree that you need to get a job, because I find this is something that I find myself encountering when I have these informational interviews. And I, I kind of feel like I talk to people on two ends of the spectrum. Um, so it's really important to realize that just because you have a PhD doesn't mean that you're going to get an advanced mm-hmm. position at a company. Right. Uh, that, you know, you might need to start lower than you think you should. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, I talked to a lot of people who are, who are very humble and very willing to kind of start from the ground up and, and go. And then I, I talked to a lot of people that also feel like, you know, they've just done all of this work and they've gained all yeah. of this knowledge and all these skills and they should be hired at a, at a higher level, which is totally legitimate. And I think in, in many, many cases uh, is true, but there's such a shift going into a new, even just a new company, not even just a new industry, but starting a new company that 
I think sometimes it's, it's important to be willing to, to start at a, not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be entry level, but you know, you're not going to start necessarily as a senior researcher or something Mm -hmm. like that. You may start lower and then learn the company and learn the industry and learn to work with the people and the different software that you need to use and all these different kind of idiosyncrasies that you have to be able to understand. And then, you know, you can go from there. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, I think it comes down to um, when when you're in industry, people want to know that you can do the work, and the way that you can prove that you have you can do the work is that you've done the work. So it, it's more about what you've done, like at another company or or in your research. And of course, your your capability to learn new things and do it is important. But having a like a track record is really important. So, if you have a BA and you've had ten years of great experience, you're probably going to have a better chance at a job than a, a PhD fresh out of school who doesn't have any experience in the thing that you know you're applying for. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all this uh, insider knowledge with people. Uh, I will put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this. And I think um, people would love to see your video. So I will link to that as well. Is it okay if people contact you for informational interviews? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Caitlin, thank you again. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This was really nice to chat and I It was an honor to be able to join you on this. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.